You're tuned in to the Living Hero Podcast at livinghero.com. Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and our guest today is research psychologist and author Bruce Alexander. He is Professor Emeritus at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, where his wide-ranging work in the field of addiction began in 1970. He has counseled hardcore heroin addicts, conducted psychopharmacological research, supervised field research for the World Health Organization. Bruce Alexander is the author of two controversial books, Peaceful Measures, Canada's Way Out of the War on Drugs, and The Globalization of Addiction, A Study in Poverty of the Spirit. He was awarded the Sterling Prize for Controversy in 2007. His current activities are featured at globalizationofaddiction.ca. I am so pleased and honored to bring you Bruce Alexander. Your book really impacted my thinking, and I wonder if you would start out by giving our audience an overview of the way you've come to see addiction and and how it relates to what you're calling globalizing free market society. Well, the simplest metaphor that I can come up with is that I think of addiction sort of like the rising ocean levels. So we see ocean levels rising all over the world, and we know that's a problem. We have to build dikes, or we have to prepare for that. But really, we have to do more than that. We have to understand why those ocean levels are rising. So we get into a whole analysis of climate change, why that goes about. We have to do that, or we'll we'll really be helpless in the end. I think addiction is exactly like that. We actually have a, a rising flood of addiction all over the world, and we have all these wonderful people, these therapists and doctors who are doing the best they can with it, and harm reduction people. They're all doing the best they can. But really, if we're going to um, make sense out of this problem, if we're going to really confront this problem, we've got to know why those levels are rising. And the reason is actually not so different than the reason that the ocean levels are rising. The reason is that we're in a, a kind of a social dilemma. We're in a, a situation where our our social institutions are failing us in, in all kinds of ways, and we have to know what they are. And therefore, addiction is not just a, uh, a disease that people catch or a psychological disorder that needs to be straightened out. Addiction is really a window, if you will, through which we can look at the um, the world's problems in a, in a different light. What is the dislocation theory of addiction that you speak of? The societies that human beings have lived in forever have had all kinds of problems, and they're very imperfect things. But the one thing that they have always provided people with in every past era and and even every past civilization is a very strong groundedness in social groups, in communities, we could say, and in overarching ways of thinking, uh, spiritual communities as well as material communities. And our particular dilemma, our particular civilization has fragmented much of that. And so our civilization has a problem which was not a major problem in past civilizations. We have this rising tide, this flood, if you will, of addiction. It's a consequence of the dislocation of people from the kinds of communities, the kinds of cultures, the kinds of belonging which have always been our birthright, if you will. Yeah. Did you read Bowling Alone? <laughs> yes. Right? 
He's talking about that. Lots of people are talking about this. It's not as if it were my realization here. It's that, you know, we're all kind of coming awake to the fact that we have to somehow restore our social matrix, our social life, if we're going to be psychologically healthy. And addiction is part of that. You've been working on this for so many years, your early experiments in the creation of Rat Park. And, and I do hope you'll say a few words about that research so that the listeners understand what that was. But also your work ever since, all of this demonstrates the strong influence of nurture in the causation of addiction. And I'm just curious, how did you originally get interested in this? What spurred you to do this deep investigation of so many years? Forty years ago, I was a young psychologist, and I went to Vancouver's downtown east side, which is our district of heavy drug addiction, in those days heroin addiction, and I met these most amazing people who were junkies. And my job, of course, was to go down there and cure them, which I wasn't very good at doing, but they took it upon themselves to educate me, and they were telling me all the complexities of their of their world, and I was fascinated by it. So I would come back up to my classes at the university, and I'd, I'd start telling my students about it. And, of course, many of them found that quite fascinating, too. But always, somebody would raise his hand and say, his or her hand, and they would say, well, wait a minute. Drug addiction is caused by the action of the drugs on the brain, um, they flip a switch which can't be reversed, and that's what addiction is all about. That's all we need to know about it, story over. Well, I knew from my experience working with the junkies downtown that that wasn't the whole story. And, of course, I knew also because, you know, I have a I have a life outside of academia. I've seen addiction in my family, and, you know, I, 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 I know some things about it, too. And I knew that story was just much too simple. That story came from a particular set of experiments. It's changed now, but we're talking 40 years ago. 40 years ago, the most important experiments were rats in a Skinner box. And the rats in this box would press a little lever. They'd get a shot of, of heroin or whatever in their brain as a consequence of pressing the lever. And then they would go on pressing the lever for a very long time. And that was taken to be proof that heroin was a, a drug which once any creature, any of God's creatures, including uh, laboratory rats, have some experience of it, they can't stop. And that experiment it was taken very seriously in those days. But if you think about it, it's not a very logical experiment because here we have rats in a Skinner box, which is just the opposite of, of where a rat wants to be. Rats are colonial animals. They want to be in... In large social groups, they want to be, you know, out in the open with lots of space all around them. So we said, you know, what will happen if we take those rats out of the Skinner box and we put them in, in a colony? So we called our colony Rat Park because we thought it was so beautiful. And the rats thought it was beautiful too because they had a great time there and they, you know, they would interact in all kinds of ways and of course make lots of babies and, and, you know, everything. It was a kind of a Garden of Eden. For, for rats, or if you will, rat park. And then of, then, of course, we tested them to see if they would um, take drugs as they would if they were in the Skinner box. The answer is no. And we, so we, we actually did a carefully controlled experiment, and, and the differences are huge that, you know, as much as maybe 
10 or, or even 16 times as much heroin um, is consumed. Actually, we used morphine, not, not heroin, but it's the same. About 16 times as much is consumed by isolated rats as is consumed by the rats in Rat Park. So that experiment really is a nonsense experiment, and, and that raises a whole set of questions. Oh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic because it, it shows that it has a lot to do with stress and misery. And I have to just say that you had to have the empathy, the ability to think about the rat's, you know, overall experience to even think of this experiment. It's wonderful. Well, <laughs> thank you for the, the compliment. But I think, I, I actually think anybody who looks at a rat in a Skinner box was just a tiny isolation chamber, um, it's it's almost sensory isolation as well as social social isolation would see that of course except that we're educated as psychologists not to see that we're, we were educated in those days as psychologists to see that a a Skinner box was somehow a uh, a stand-in for reality which it isn't. You present four common ways that the word addiction is used, but you break them out and show how they have different uh, but overlapping meanings. Why is it important to do that? Why do you think it's helpful to understand these distinctions, and what are the distinctions? Well, it's important because I have been in my life, you know, in thousands of conversations about addiction, and quite often they fall apart, and people wind up shouting at each other or or sullenly hating each other, or whatever it is. And part of the reason they do is they aren't using the word in the same way. And even they're changing the way they use the word in the process of the conversation. So if we're, if we're to talk, uh, you know, productively about addiction, we really have to know what we mean. So I spent a lot of time going back through history and exploring what the word actually means. Um, what the word has always meant, and, and this is the important meaning of the word, uh, if you go back 400 years to the time of Shakespeare and, and from then on, the word addiction has meant uh, an overwhelming involvement with something. Like it could be with um, music or it could be with with eating or it could be with a person or it could be with uh, the study of logic or it, or it could be uh, eloquence or it could be service to the king, just absolutely anything. What the word always has meant in the English language is that people have this capacity to give themselves over to um, an overwhelming involvement with, with something or other. And this word in the past um, has is neither a good word nor a bad word. That is, some of those cases where people are overwhelmingly involved, it's just great. You know, they're, they're overwhelmingly involved with service to the church or with service to the king or something. You know, you're complimenting a person by saying he's addicted. Or you can, you can mean that he's overwhelmingly involved with uh, money, for example. And then you call him a miser. And that's anything but a compliment. That's a, that's a terrible insult. Or you can mean that he's overwhelmingly involved with food. And then you call him a glutton. And that's a terrible insult. Or you can mean he's overwhelmingly involved with alcohol, and then you call him a drunkard, and that's a terrible insult. So the word addiction, which is used for all these things, um, means overwhelming involvement, but, but historically it has either a positive sense or a negative sense. 
So, so I think if we're going to talk about it now, well, normally when we talk about it, we mean it in the negative sense, overwhelmingly involved with something which is really harming us and it's harming society. And that I call, in my jargon, that's, that's addiction three, the uh, overwhelming kind that really hurts us. And addiction four is the overwhelming kind that really doesn't hurt us. And I think those are the two meaningful uses of the word addiction, the two most important uses of the word addiction now. But another meaning which, which is really predominant now is the, is the meaning which arose in the 19th century. It means overwhelming involvement with a drug which is out of a person's control and which is somehow like a disease. Now that's a, that's an entirely different sense of it. You see, the, the, what I'm calling addiction three and addiction four have nothing to do with disease. They have nothing to do with drugs necessarily. Um, and they're not menacing words. But, but this, but this use of, of addiction, which I call addiction one because it, it's the most predominant right now, confuses everything. Um, and then there's one, another one, which I call addiction two, which is even more confusing. And that is, it includes addiction one. It's all that negative stuff related to drugs. And then it adds to it uses of drugs which are not necessarily overwhelmingly involving. For example, if your son or daughter gets caught using marijuana when they're not supposed to be, well, they're, they're liable to wind up in a treatment center for addiction. But they're not addicted in, in either the sense of addiction three or four or one. But the word is extended to include almost anything that we consider problematic about about drugs. So you put all those four together and try to have a conversation where somebody is thinking of it one way and somebody is thinking of it in another of those four ways, and you don't have a very good conversation. You just have problems. You're listening to an interview with Bruce Alexander, a Canadian researcher and author and a leading expert in the field of human addiction. While we're defining terms, um, would you... Tell the audience what you mean by psychosocial integration, because this is what you are saying is the thing we need and the thing that the breakdown of which uh, is increasing addiction. So so what is it? Well, it's it's a bit of jargon which comes from um, Eric Erickson, but it, it's a very important bit of jargon because it refers to the fact that for all of human history, people have been embedded in social groups. A, a, a person is never a, a solitary animal. A person is never an individualist until recently. So this psychosocial integration refers to all the connections which make us function well in the groups that we, that we grow up in and that we live in. It means that we're connected not only to our parents and to our close friends, but also to the, you know, our religious leaders and the, the other people around us who are connected to us in various kinds of economic relationships or other kinds of connections. Psychosocial integration is a web of connections which you can look at and you can see it socially, but it's also a psychological event. In other words, our identity is not that of just us alone against the world. Our identity through most of history, has been us as part of that big nexus of connections. And when people are deprived of psychosocial integration, you have a, a state which I call dislocation. In other words, people are artificially 
individualized. And that is problematic. Now, in our culture now, we have kind of uh, made it into a virtue. I mean, we talk about rugged individualism or the American dream or, you know, succeeding on your own and, and being self-reliant. And of course, those things are, they are virtues. Those are, those are things which are difficult to do. And, uh, you know, we can respect people who do that. But carried to an extreme where individualism is carried to the extreme that, that it destroys psychosocial integration, it becomes terribly harmful. And that's why if you look back in history and you say, how, do, how are people punished? If you really want to hurt somebody, what do you do to them? Well, you exile them or you ostracize them or you excommunicate them. In other words, the, the worst thing you can do to a human being is to break down their psychosocial integration. That leaves them in a state of dislocation. And dislocation, I believe, is the precursor to our rising flood of addiction right now. And you've said that China is really the place to watch now to see if this theory bears out because there are changes going on there that we can track. So what's the picture of addiction in China now, and what do you predict about the way things will unfold there? Well, it's fascinating. The picture is that China is one of the few countries of the world that had addiction pretty well under control 50 years ago. And it's now... It's gone from that state to being one of the countries which has the worst affliction of addiction of any country right now. And what has changed, of course, is that China has gone into rugged individualism in a big way. China has, has completely changed its economic system so that it now has a, an economic system which is based on ours. When Deng Xiaoping introduced market socialism into China, his advisor was Milton Friedman the great American economist. So China has an economic system now which is based on rugged individualism, and of course it has produced economic miracle. I mean, <laughs> we all know this, right? China has become a, a Goliath of uh, economically, and at the same time, China has acquired an addiction problem which is, which is fearsome. They can't control it. They look to us, and they import all our Western technologies for treatment and, and stuff, and it doesn't work any better for them than it works for us. They can't control it. And it's because it was instigated by that kind of an economic system which deliberately breaks down psychosocial integration. Let's really get into this. You ended the globalization of addiction, a study in poverty of the spirit, by saying that to really address our addictions, humankind's addictions, globally, that this will require a transformation of worldview globally. Would you talk about what you meant in your conclusion there? Yeah. Um, civilizations are based on ideas. Ours is based on a particular idea which has been enormously productive, but it's now run its course. It's not just breaking down environmentally or not just breaking down politically because we're at constant war. And it's not just breaking down economically because we're in constant economic depressions and other catastrophes. And it's not just breaking down psychologically because we're overwhelmed with depression and addiction and things like that. 
It's breaking down in all kinds of ways. That means um, that, you know, we are in a civilization which has run its course, and it's either going to collapse and then something new is going to emerge, or we're going to find a way to, to restore it to vigor. There, there are, I think, only those two possibilities. And if, if we are to find a way to restore it to vigor, you know, we have to look at those places who are doing it better than we are. But we also have to, to accept the fact that this is an unprecedented situation. We don't, there is no formula. There is nobody, um, who is going to tell us the, the recipe for restoring our, our civilization to, to health and, and vigor because it's, this has never happened before. So I say, what, you know, what we have to do is we have to look around to the people who are doing it best and, um, and we can do that. For example, I've just returned from Scandinavia and, um, particularly Norway and Denmark. And, and, you know, these countries are not, um, perfect or flawless in, in any ways, but they're doing a lot better than we are. Really a lot better in all kinds of things, including addiction. Um, they just don't have the level of addiction that we do, and when they have it, they they handle it better, and they don't have a you know a whole bunch of other problems like uh, at the level that we do. So you know, I think we have to learn from those who are doing it better. I and I think the secret that I I discern in Scandinavia is that they really spend the money and take the time to protect their culture as well as they can in a capitalist world. I mean, these are capitalist countries, of course, but they, but they find a way to protect their, their culture anyway, and they work very hard at that. And, and so that's a study which I will be continuing because, you know, I, I think they know more than we know, but they don't know the answer either. They're, they're suffering from the same problems. It's just that they're not as far down the road as we are. And I think we have to look at, Countries in South America who are doing better than we are. I, I think that would include Brazil and Ecuador and Venezuela. These are countries which are, you know, they're not necessarily so much capitalist countries as we are, but they're, but, but again, they're making the investment in protecting their, their cultures, protecting their societies in a way that we've forgotten. I mean, I, I think the, to me, the key is, the, you know, that we have given, we have unbridled the capitalist system. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with capitalism. I like it. <laughs> but unbridled, it becomes the, a beast. It has to be domesticated. And we haven't, we haven't found out how to domesticate it. Rather, you know, it's running away with us. It's wrecking, it's wrecking us psychologically as well as wrecking us economically. And we have to, we have to do that. But what's the formula for doing that? I don't know. I, th- I think we can look to those who do it better than us, and I think we have to turn to our own imagination, and that's that's where we are. You know, I, I talk to a lot of people about this problem, and and you know, none of this is just my idiosyncrasy. I, uh, lots of people think the same thing, and people are working hard. They're doing all kinds of experiments with you know new kinds of social groupings in the city and new kinds of uh, communal living in the country and new kinds of cooperative organizations, all these things which are which are looking for a, a, a better way of doing things. Well I think I believe that those experiments will bear fruit and that and that we may well be able to um, restore health and vigor to our system rather than having to go down the tubes. But both are possible. 
Well, when I first heard the word psychosocial integration, what came to my mind was that the deep psychological needs of the human being would be reflected in the social atmosphere. And just hearing you repeatedly using the word culture and speaking about these other countries where things are working better, I really question whether the United States really has a culture to protect or fall back on, and that may be why it's so difficult to integrate. I'm a long-term meditator, and I spent the whole month of December on a silent retreat, and then I came back and drew up the questions for this interview. So the teachings of the Buddha played very strongly into my thoughts, and he taught over 2,500 years ago, on the other side of the world, that it's the human predicament. And, you know, and of course he's dealing with the deep psycho-spiritual needs of people. He says that it's the human predicament, that the unenlightened, the untrained human mind is ill at ease, it's restless, uh, irritable, you know, often driven by unconscious cravings and longings and hostilities and so on, and that what it takes, what he urged his disciples to do was to leave home and family and live with one meal a day and become wanderers, you know, sort of the opposite of this sense of belonging in a tight-knit, integrated group. He urged them to have very simple, harmless living as the support for an enlightened mind, and it wasn't just the Buddha. You know, if you look at other spiritual leaders, you see a similar picture. Jesus and his disciples wandered around, you know, barefoot and just wrapped in cloths. Gandhi had almost no personal possessions. Martin Luther King, in his last speech, was talking about having been to a mountaintop and not being worried about anything and not fearing you know, he said, mine eyes have seen the glory. This deep spiritual experience seems to be something that urges for a transcendence. And I wonder how you reconcile this with the dislocation theory and your research on addiction and poverty of the spirit. That's a wonderful question. On the, on the surface, there's an opposition. It would seem like one either takes a spiritual route or one takes a social route. But it, but the paradox is that those two are the same. Those two are actually different sides of the same coin. And I feel confident in saying that because so many of my friends are meditators, and, and in fact, I have recently done a 10-day silent meditation myself. Those two things are opposite sides of the same coin. And I think you're, you know, by putting it in terms of Martin Luther King, you really, you really make it uh, absolutely clear. If you think about that speech that Martin Luther King gave, I mean, every time I hear it, I I actually cry when I hear the end of it. I'm not a weepy person, believe me, <laughs> but that one makes me cry. This, this is a man who has transcended, a man who is facing death, not without fear and not without concern, but he's just facing it and in the most transcendent way. It's amazing. But think about what he was doing when he gave that speech. That speech was a speech to the sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. It was garbage men he was talking to. And in the speech, he's not telling them to meditate. He's not telling them to look for spiritual alternatives. 
he's telling them, and I think he's telling me, because you know I'm I'm a guy like them. I my my ancestors are are farmers and laborers and small businessmen. You know, people who got their hands in the garbage. I think he's telling people like me, you you've got to hang together. He's he's speaking on the occasion of a big strike, and the the strike was beginning to fail. Some people were going back to work, and he's saying, "Don't let this strike fail. Continue." He's saying, "Hang together, support each other, make it work, and make it work by your concern with each other." And he's talking about make it worth on a material level. You know, this strike is about working conditions. It's about money. It's about the kind of respect that you need to. You need to have. So there's an amazing spiritual figure. And on the other hand, he's talking about the absolute necessity of achieving the social, of making the social work for us. So, so that's the paradox. And those two things fit together in the same man, in the same speech. Now you do get into the need for solidarity and and understanding in your book. Your chapter from blindness and paralysis to action was really rousing. Um, and you put things together in a very organized way. So maybe you could share some of that with our listeners. The question would be, you mentioned that you don't think that spiritual treatment for addiction works. If that can't work, why? And what are the types of things that can work for people and move them from blindness and paralysis to action? Okay, I didn't mean to say exactly that spiritual treatment can't work. I think it's, uh, you know, spiritual treatment is very important, and it does sometimes work. What I mean to say is that spiritual treatment cannot solve the problem of addiction by itself, because it's only half the coin. There are some people who are, you know, able with a little bit of spiritual inspiration in meditation or, or in Christian churches or whatever, there are some people who are are able to be spiritually inspired to rise above the chaos which is around them and to rise above the the loneliness and the isolation and the dislocation which which makes them inclined to respond with addiction but not a lot i mean we've been trying we've been perfecting the spiritual approach for literally thousands of years and we've kind of pushed it to its limit it will help some people a lot it will help many people a little, and it won't help some people at all. What we have to do now is attend to the social. We have to face the fact that we live in a dislocated, ugly, materialistic world. We're inflicting that on our children, and we got to stop that without giving up our spiritual disciplines because they will help us with the social. The social and the spiritual are one. To be spiritual is to be concerned with other people, and social groups are always held together by some kind of transcendent concept, some sort of broad, often mystical understanding of, of what makes the world work. So we've got to have both at once. You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and our program guest is addiction researcher and author Bruce Alexander. Now, my idea of getting beyond paralysis is this, that I say blindness and paralysis, because I think, you know, 40 years ago, we were really blind to what addiction was all about. We thought it was just drugs, and we'd solve it all with a drug war, and that was nonsense. Now we know a little bit more. We also know that our 
uh, civilization which 40 years ago appeared like it was well it was it was the it was the dominant force in in the world well now we know it's it's full of problems too so so we're not as blind as we used to be but we're still paralyzed and i i had the experience quite recently of taking an amtrak train across the united states very 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 interesting because i spoke with all these american people at you know at the three meals a day which occur on the train and there's so much paralysis. There's so many people saying, well, you know, we can't, we can see that, that everything's wrong, but we can't do anything about it. It's too big. We can't, we can't fight it. Well, my book, my, my past book, which you've read and my coming book are really mostly about that. We can fight it. We can fight it. And, and people say, well, you know, that's naive. You know, you're naive to think you can take on Goldman Sachs and, and the government of the United States and, uh, and all that. But my re- response to that is, no, you know, you're naive if you think we can take on the problem of addiction just by, you know, doing brain scans and, and analyzing people's dopamine and doing cognitive behavior therapy and stuff like that. That's naive. What's realistic is that we have to undergo social change. We have to bring it about, and we're going to. It, social change is absolutely inevitable because our systems are breaking down. It's just a matter of trying very hard to be part of that change in all the little groups that we, you know, were associated with and in the, the large political actions which, which we take part in, you know, in all those things. We can be agents of inevitable change. In other words, the change is coming, but we're, we, can, we can steer a little bit, and that's what we have to do. And that's, and that's what I believe, and that's why I write books. Because <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I, I want people to have that possibility more firmly in mind. I mean, the, the amount of paralysis right now is scary. Let me just ask you then about the we and the they, because it seems to me that there are a lot of people with guns who really don't want to let things change in this direction that we speak of. You actually have a section in the book where you talk about this. Who is we and who is they, and where does it get fuzzy? Yeah, well, it's just what you say. I mean, the we is the people who recognize that things have to change and they have to change a way which is more fit for human habitation, that we have to have stronger communities, stronger culture, and more belonging. That's the we. And that they are the people with guns. And not only do they have guns, they have billion-dollar bank accounts that they can use as weapons uh, against that. But there's another dimension to it because... It isn't just that there's two separate groups of people. It's that there are an awful lot of people have one foot in each of those camps. For example, I'm, I'm sitting here in a university campus and, you know, there's a lot of, of people around here who are part of the we in the sense that they have a good spirit, but they're part of the they in the sense that they know in order to get research grants, they got to tell a bunch of lies and please the, the research granting agencies and turn out a bunch of stuff which is not really fully true. It's not really fully facing the the problems that they're meant to analyze. So the we and the they is is not only a, a social division, which it is partly, but it's more a spiritual division. It's more that, that each of us has got to confront the they-ness uh, in our own mind and find ways to have the courage. Again, Martin Luther King it's all about courage. It's finding ways to have the courage to do what we know to be right. And that, I mean, that sounds really kind of maybe hokey. Maybe this sounds like something your your grandpa would say, but I think... I think you're absolutely right, though. It, it has to do 
with, you know, untangling the hypocrisies that so many of us are living with and really being stronger and actually finding out that a lot of happiness comes about through being good and being honest and doing the right thing. Yeah, I think it is. It It is really that simple. Uh, of course, that's very complex because to be... Again, uh, to go back to that Martin Luther King speech, I mean, he's talking about the story of the Samaritan and he says there's this man lying on the road and he's wounded and these priests go riding by on their donkeys or whatever because they're going to church uh, or to the synagogue. And um, he says, you know, but really why do they ride by? They ride by because they're afraid. They're afraid to, to get their hands dirty or to get, you know, to put themselves in harm's way. And I think really... In the end, it, the situation is clear enough now so that, that really courage is the, is the issue. Now, are you thinking in a militant way, the more spiritual, transcendent, evolved people, they're not inclined to fight all the time, to always be on the defensive and certainly not wanting to be on the offensive. And yet that's the position we're in when we're constantly assaulted by advertising, by uh, laws and rules that are against our principles. We feel like we want to fight it, but that's not really how we want to live. No, of course not. But again, I, I, I go back to that Martin Luther King speech, which you, you introduced, and, and you know, it's a speech about, about being militant. Of course, it's militant in a nonviolent way. He never forgets that he's, he's a nonviolent person. But he's saying, you know, you can't rest. He's saying that, you know, tomorrow there'll be a meeting on the strike. You've got to be there. It doesn't matter if you'd rather go to church or you'd rather do your work or whatever. You've got to be there. He's saying that. I just think it's the most wonderful speech in the world because that's that's our situation. We've got to be there. If all the people who profess to be with us, be with you in this way of thinking, would actually call a general strike, we could get a lot of things done in a hurry, but people are very attached to their creature comforts. This is what brings me back to the Buddha, Jesus, and other spiritual leaders teaching that we have to strengthen ourselves and be willing and able to do without the material things to live with ethics and principles and that deep happiness and peace of mind of living right. Yeah. That's that's exactly right. I really don't have a comment on that. I think that's right. I think so what our spiritual leaders teach us is what's important. And I think now that addiction is helping to teach us what's important. I think addiction is a kind of a window. It's not just a, you know, a disease that we're going to go out there and cure. It's a window through which we look and we and we see really what's wrong with our world and and what's important and and to do that to approach that is to to be both spiritual and socially active at the same time in looking at how things do work in the academic world and in the publishing world i have to say that you're a hero to me because it takes a lot of courage to to put things together you've integrated psychology and spirituality and geopolitics and economics and you're really doing 
the work that's being called for now on the cutting edge to integrate disciplines and to put things all together so that people can see where we are and what we need to do. Now, the establishment doesn't like that sort of thing. Things tend to move very, very slowly if they move at all. My question is, what kind of response have you gotten to your work and where has the reception been most negative and where has it been most positive and welcoming? Well, I have to make a thank you for the compliment. I, I have to make a distinction between the response at the top and the response at the bottom. Um, at the top, that is, granting agencies and, and so forth, uh, have hated my work. I haven't had a research grant for decades, except one. Mm. And the one research grant which I got from the World Health Organization was for a study which was actively suppressed. So it's never been published. So from the top, I have got no encouragement whatsoever. But over the 40 years I've been doing this, I've, I'm getting more and more and more encouragement from the bottom. It's, it's, it's absolutely exciting that, you know, speeches or ideas which I could have discussed, say, 35 years ago, 40 years ago, people would have just gotten mad at me as they did in, in class uh, or in public speeches. Now people are listening, and it isn't because I'm speaking that much better. It's because the world has changed. It's because, you know, we can all see the nature of these problems. And in the case of addiction, you know, we can all see, well, it isn't just a nasty little disease that we're going to cure with brain chemicals. It's a, it's a great big issue, which is, which is fo focusing us on our world. So if I look at the response from the bottom, it's, um, it's, it's amazingly positive now, although it wasn't always. You mentioned before uh, a forthcoming book. Please tell us about what we have to look forward to, and if that's already gone to the publishers, what are you really working on right now? Right now, I'm working on being a good grandfather, being a good <laughs> father, and a good neighbor, and I do a lot of stuff in the in the neighborhood because I've educated myself to know how important that is. That's one thing. Another thing is that there's a new book coming which is actually a rewriting of the globalization of addiction because the globalization of addiction is for many people too academic. So we're, I'm trying very hard to write a, uh, a book that will be a trade book and will actually be sold in stores more often. And the third thing is that, that I'm writing a history of psychology and I actually have a uh, contract with Cambridge University Press to turn out a history of psychology because I think psychology is the most important discipline of all, with the possible exception of political science, we've got to get psychology right. And I think, you know, we've gone astray in psychology, not just in the area of addiction, but in a more general sense. But that book is five years off. But you might look for the uh, the new addiction book, which is probably only one year off. And I'm very excited about that one because it's retelling these issues in a, in a way which I, I think may have a lot more impact because a lot more people will be able to read it. Yeah, I'm so glad you're doing that. Uh, just a quick question about the history of psychology. Where do you date the beginning of the history of psychology? Well, the, I mean, the first great psychologist of, was Plato um, in, in, in my system, but in anybody's system. If you read, if you read The Republic, uh, you know, it's often read as if it were a political science book of proposing, a, a, you know, an ideal society. But, it, but if you read it carefully, it's actually a psychology book. 
he's he's actually saying, you know, what is the concept of justice? Not so much in society, but what is the concept of of justice in a human being? And 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 what he's what he's trying to he says justice. I that's really not a a, a good word to use for it in English, but it it's more like what is mental health, and and mm-hmm. he approaches that concept, and and so that's where I think modern psychology begins, and then. You know, of course, it goes every direction from there. Brilliant. Well, I just really want to thank you for your many decades of work. Glad to know you're going forward with this, and I really look forward to seeing the popular version of the globalization of addiction and, and telling people about that one, too. Sherry, thank you very much. Special thanks for today's program go to audio engineer Charles de Montebello of CDM Studios, New York. Living Hero is a production of In This Regard, a fiscally sponsored project of Fractured Atlas, which serves as our nonprofit umbrella. We receive funding and in-kind contributions from the Puffin Foundation and from listeners like you. Your contributions are tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. Please help us continue to offer and grow this program. To access our archive of interviews, to post your comments, and to help us fund future programs, visit us at livinghero.com. Thanks for listening.